right, amen. You can go ahead and grab a seat. All right, well, welcome to LifePoint. My name is Matthew, and I have the privilege of serving as the uh, teaching pastor here at the Westerville campus. And if today's your first time visiting, first time checking this out, we're so thankful that you chose to spend your Sunday with us. And we would love uh, just the privilege and the opportunity to connect with you, to get to know you, to hear your story. And uh, the easiest way for you to do that is to uh, scan the QR code on the seat back in front of you. There's an, uh, a section there called Guest Info, and if you'll complete that, we'll actually make a $5 donation to one of our local ministry partners in your honor as our way of saying thank you for, uh, for being with us. You'll also see a section called Notes that you can follow along with during today's message. So 1030 service, we got a good problem. We are pretty much, we have exceeded uh, capacity. Um, over the last couple of uh, months, I'm a big numbers guy. I used to be, uh, be a CPA, accounting world. I'm a numbers guy, geek out on that. So I'm you know, looking at number projections and trends and stuff. And what we have noticed over the last three months is our 1030 service just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm sure you, you feel that, especially if you show up even a couple minutes late here for the 1030 service, it's, it can be challenging to, to, to find a, a seat. Uh, last week, our room, so we, this room holds a little over 200. We had 12 available seats. We were at like 95, 96% capacity. And kind of the rule of thumb in church world is once you hit 80% capacity, your room is, is kind of maxed out. And we are well over that. Um, so here, here is my, my ask. Here is what I'm gonna ask you to, to pray about, to consider. Um, you won't be, be shamed or judged maybe just a little bit, but if you would, would pray about and consider, and I know with family schedules and some of you, you know, do stuff with student ministry at 12 o'clock or you serve at different hours, I understand there's a lot of dynamics, but pray about, consider um, attending either our nine o'clock service or our 12 o'clock service in, in the future. Here, here's why we, we make that ask is because the majority of our guests, the service that they show up to is the 10:30 service, and if you pull in uh, right now, I'm just thinking of like people, my my wife and I's age visiting the first time. You got a three-year-old, you got a one-year-old. You've been battling just to get them dressed, get them fed, get them out the door. You pull in parking lot is just a madhouse. You're parking on the street. Today it's raining. You're you're walking in. You're getting them checked into to childcare, and then you walk in, and it's like there is nowhere for us to to sit. And, and we've seen even families who, who showed up at 1030, they walk in the room, and especially during the music when everyone's standing, it can be really hard to see seats, and they'll, they'll actually just leave rather than, than stick around. So um, just know on our end as a staff, we are actively working through trying to come up with a, uh, a more permanent solution uh, just because of the growth that God has brought to, to our campus. Uh, but in the meantime, as we navigate the, the three different services, would love for you to just consider and pray about for your family if attending either the nine o'clock or 12 o'clock would work for your family just to free up space for our guests to attend at 1030 because I don't want anybody to feel like they're not welcome or to feel like they don't have a, a place here uh, because we have so many people in, in the room. But hey, that's a good problem to have, right? Rather than say, hey, the room's empty, like we need y'all to bring people. No, man, 1030, uh, it's awesome what God's doing here. Love the energy. 
Don't tell anybody this is my favorite service to, to preach to, just because it's a full room, um, but would love for you to, to just pray about that, consider that. I'll say something again next week. I don't feel like I'm beating you over the head with it, but a lot of the people who are going to be here next week weren't here today, um, but just want to make that, that ask from, from you all. So today, uh, we're kicking off a brand new teaching series called Exiles. Uh, we finished our, our 10 weeks going through the book of, of Revelation and over the next few weeks, we're going to be walking through the first half of the book of, of Daniel. And I really think this is a, a great follow-up series to what we just looked at in, in Revelation, because it's really going to flesh out a lot of the stuff that we talked about and studied and provide just some very practical application for us as believers, especially around the idea of you and I living in a modern-day Babylon, living in a society, living in a culture that is oftentimes at odds with our beliefs as Christians. So if you have your, your Bible with you, would encourage you to go ahead and open up to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. And this series is really going to revolve around the life of these four young men, Daniel and his, his three friends. And these four men, young men, they found themselves living as exiles in a nation that was at odds with their beliefs and their values. And we're going to see the way that they navigated through some just honestly really tough situations uh, where they had to make some really difficult decisions. But we're going to see the way that they navigate through this culture and continue to honor the Lord with their lives throughout the process. And here's the big idea that, that we're going to see for, for this series. Faith is more about how you live than where you live. Our faith as followers of Jesus, it's more about how we live than where we live. You see, our, our faith is not contingent upon where we live. It's not about us living in a Christian nation or a Christian society. It's not about living in a culture that accepts and affirms and celebrates our beliefs. Our faith is about how we live regardless of the context that we find ourselves in. Meaning that you and I, as followers of Jesus, we can live out our faith while living in a society and a culture that is indifferent towards our beliefs, and even in a society that may even be hostile towards our beliefs as, as Christians. So, in Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we read this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon and put in the treasure house of his God. So the, the opening verses of Daniel, they provide us with a lot of historical context to kind of set the, the scene for us and help us to understand what's going on. You see, after the, the reign of, of King Solomon, and many of us know him, we know Saul, we know David, and we know his son, son Solomon. After King Solomon, the nation of Israel, it was super dysfunctional. It ended up splitting into two different kingdoms. You had the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And from that point on, and you read about this throughout the Old Testament, each of these kingdoms was led by their own king. They had some good kings along the way, but for the most part, they had some really bad and corrupt kings. 
And both of these kingdoms fell into just this downward spiral of disobedience and unbelief towards God. They began to, to worship these idols. They began to worship the, the false gods of the neighboring uh, nations and, and, and people groups. And God continued to warn them along the way. Listen, listen, if, if you don't stop, if you don't repent, if you don't change direction, I'm going to remove my hand of blessing and protection from your people, from your nation, and, and you're going to end up in, in exile. So the story in, in Daniel begins, we're told, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And Jehoiakim was the son of King Josiah, which may be familiar to, to some of you. Uh, you know, many of us, we know kids who are named Josiah. Christians oftentimes name their kids Josiah because Josiah was one of those, those few kings uh, who actually faithfully served the Lord. But I know that none of us know any kids named Jehoiakim. One, because it's kind of an awful name. And two, because he was a really bad dude. Like, he did not follow the Lord. He did not follow in the footsteps of his father, Josiah. And after just three years, this wasn't even like a, a long period of time. After three years, God was like, look, I'm, I'm done. You don't want to follow me. You don't want to trust me. You don't want to believe that I know what's best for you. Well, then, then good luck. I'm going to remove my hand of blessing and protection from you. And when that happened, this massive empire known as Babylon invaded Judah and attacked and destroyed the capital city of Jerusalem. And in verse 3, we're told this. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. So here's what we need to understand. King Nebuchadnezzar was a very smart and effective military leader. This guy knew what he was doing. And his goal wasn't simply to just go into to Judah and destroy the capital city, which many would think, okay, that's, that's enough. That's devastation. He didn't want to just destroy their capital. He wanted to destroy their future. So what he did was he found the best and brightest young men in, in the city. From the, the, the richest families, from, from the, the, the families of, of nobility, these guys were, were wealthy, well-educated, had all kinds of potential. I mean, these were the up-and-coming leaders, the top 25, under 25. These were the leaders of their, their, their future. And he said, take those guys and bring them back to, to Babylon. We're going to devastate their future. We're going to take the best and brightest. And he brought these young men back to Babylon and he put them into this three-year training program where they were exposed to the Babylonian literature and, and language and religion. And the, the goal of the, the training program was, was very simple. It was indoctrination. They wanted these young men to think like a Babylonian, to talk like a Babylonian, to, to act like a Babylonian. They wanted to remove any connection that these men had to being an Israelite. And at the end of the three years, the end of the program, after they had been indoctrinated with the, the ways of, of Babylon, they would enter into the king's service and they would begin to, to, to serve and to advise the, the king. 
So he's just devastating the kingdom of Judah, taking their, their, their best. But we're told about, about four of these guys in particular. Verse six tells us this. Among those who were chosen from Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So we're introduced to, to these four young men who have found themselves as, as exiles, living in this, this foreign land. And I think it's easy for us to kind of just read through this story, feel very disconnected from it. But just think about it. Just imagine for a moment the, the emotions, the feelings these, these guys would have felt. I mean, these guys are probably 13 to 15 years old. I mean, think like a, a freshman in high school, getting their learner's permit, learning to shave for the first time. These, these are the kind of guys. They're, they're, their home has just been leveled and destroyed. They've been taken away from, from their friends, from their family. They know in their minds we're never going to see them again. And now they are being indoctrinated with, with, with the Babylonian language and literature and religion. They're living in a nation, in a foreign nation, that they know hates them. They are living among their enemies. And the very first step in this training program was to change their names. And why did they do that? What was the purpose of changing their names? You see, all these Israelite young men, their names were tied to their religious heritage. In fact, Daniel's name in Hebrew means God, Yahweh, Elohim, is my judge. So they wanted to remove any connection these young men had to their religious heritage, to their faith as, as Israelites. And they took their names that, that, that were references to, to Yahweh, to their God, and changed their names to names that referred to and referenced the Babylonian gods. It was their way of completely trying to change their identity. So every time that they heard somebody speak to them and call them by their name, it was a reminder to them, I am not in my home anymore. I am not connected to my people. I'm not connected to, to my faith anymore. And at this point for, for Daniel, 15-year-old kid living in this kind of environment, I mean, this guy has every reason at this point to just compromise his beliefs, and his values as an Israelite. He's away from his home. He knows he's never going to see his, his friends again. He's never going to see his family again. He's being indoctrinated. And it would be much easier for him, man, just, just submit to what they're, they're doing. Don't, don't push back. Don't fight against it. Don't cause any problems. Don't make things harder on yourself than they need to be. You've been through enough. Like, we're going to understand, just lay low, fly under the radar, but look what it says Daniel does in verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission to not defile himself this way. It says that Daniel resolved to not defile himself. Resolve means to firmly determine to do something. He firmly determined to not defile himself with the royal food and wine because the food and the drink that was being offered to him, and think about that, you're, you're getting the, the best food, the best drink in the entire empire. You're eating from the king's table, but the food and the drink being offered was prohibited by the Torah. 
It was, in, it was in contradiction to his values and his beliefs. It was inconsistent with them. And here's what we need to understand. This wasn't a decision that Daniel made in the moment when the food and the drink was offered to him. You know, when he's given the opportunity to, to eat from the, the king's table, he wasn't trying to figure out in the moment where he stood on this, this, this issue, where he stood on this when it was presented to him. Daniel had predecided, he had predetermined in his heart and in his mind what his values and his beliefs were. He had predecided where he would not cross the line. And for him, one of those lines that he was unwilling to cross was eating and drinking the royal food and wine. That was a line he would not cross. You know, this is a, a principle that I used to teach all the time uh, when, I, when I was in student ministry. I would tell our, our high school guys, man, you don't want to try to figure out your beliefs and your values about sex while you're in the back seat with your girlfriend. Like, that's a really bad time for you to try to figure out, okay, where am I going to draw the, the line in that? that? That's not a good time. You, you don't want to try to determine your, your beliefs and your values about uh, drugs and alcohol while you're at a party with your friends. Like, that, that's not the moment where you want to try to figure out where you stand. You need to pre-decide what your values are. You need to pre-decide where you're going to draw the line. But how true is that even for us as, as adults? We need to pre-decide, pre-determine what our values are. We need to pre-decide where we're going to draw the line, especially when it comes to those areas that are a little gray, where it's not necessarily about right, wrong, sinful, not sinful, but it's more about, okay, is this wise? Is this the wise thing to do? Where am I going to draw the line? Let me give you a few examples of maybe what this would, would, would look like for us. <clears throat> Where's the line when it comes to spending time with or messaging someone that isn't my spouse? And where, where am I going to draw that line? Where is too far? Where am I stepping into the territory where this isn't, isn't wise? And where, where's the line when it comes to how much I'm going to drink? And what context I'm comfortable drinking in? And who I'll drink with? Where am I going to draw that line? Where, where's the line when it comes to, to financial decisions? When things are maybe a little gray and there's some wiggle room. We need to pre-decide our values, our beliefs. We need to pre-decide where we're going to draw the line. And that's exactly what we see Daniel doing. He had pre-decided in his heart, in his mind, where that line was. But notice the way that he navigated this situation. Notice the way that he took a stand against something that conflicted with his values and beliefs. He didn't, he didn't throw a temper tantrum in the moment. He didn't freak out. He didn't try to rally his friends and his guys together to, to protest. No, it says that he asked the chief official for permission. He approached his authority. He approached his enemy with respect and with humility. And what did God do? What happened? We're told that God honored Daniel's faithfulness and began to work on his behalf. 
we're told that he changed the heart of this chief official and that he began to show favor and compassion to, to Daniel. But he was in a tricky spot. Like, he, he, he wanted to help Daniel out, but he's afraid of the king. He's afraid of what this would mean. So Daniel presented this very reasonable, very balanced solution to him. He said, hey, here, I don't want to get you in trouble. Here, here's what I would propose. For 10 days, let us, rather than eating and drinking the, from the, the royal tables, let us eat vegetables and drink water, just for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, compare the four of us with everyone else. And at that point, we'll, we'll make some decisions. So for 10 days, they, they ate these vegetables. They drank, they drank some water rather than, than eating from the king's table. At the end of the 10 days, when they compared the two groups, they found that these four young men were head and shoulders above the rest, that they were healthier, they were better nourished, and they made the decision going forward that the rest of the guys weren't gonna eat and drink from the king's table, which I'm sure they were not happy about because it was gonna mean broccoli and carrots and water for the rest of their time here in Babylon. But God honored their faithfulness and obedience. And listen to what it says in verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds, and we're gonna see that come into play next week. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered into the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So what we see is that, that God honored their obedience. God honored their faithfulness. And he blessed them with, with greater ability, greater understanding. He gave them influence and, and favor with the king. And we're told that after the three years, they entered into the king's service. But this, this was no accident. This was no coincidence. No, God was intentionally and strategically placing these young men in the heart of this empire to make a difference for him. And over the next few weeks, we're gonna see these, these young men continue to navigate life in Babylon as they hold to their convictions and, and, and walk through some, some incredible trials and, and adversity. But today, for, for the next few minutes, what, what I wanna do is I wanna look at just three, three basic takeaways from, from this story. Things that, that we can learn, that we can connect and apply to our lives today as, as followers of Jesus. How does this story make a difference in how we live our lives today? So if you're taking notes, the first takeaway is this, is that we must be different to make a difference. If we wanna make a difference, we must be different. And what we're going to see over the, the next few weeks is that, that God uses Daniel and his friends to make a, a, an extraordinary difference in this foreign land. He uses them to introduce the, the Babylonians to the one true God. But their ability to make a difference came from the fact that they were willing to be different. It all started, it all began with the fact that they would not defile themselves with the king's food and wine. They were distinct. They were set apart 
from Babylon. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes this. He says, dear friends, I urge you, I plead with you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. You see, as, as followers of Jesus, we are spiritual exiles. We live in a foreign land, a foreign world that is not our home. And for those of us here in the West, we are living in a modern day Babylon. You know, anytime the Bible talks about Babylon, it doesn't just refer to the literal historical empire of, of Babylon. Babylon represents any government, any nation, any system that sets itself up without God. Any city, any culture, any society that is at odds with biblical values and principles. So as, as spiritual exiles who find ourselves living in Babylon, living in this foreign land, what is it that we're commanded to do? Peter tells us to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against our souls. He's saying that, that you and I, we are called to be set apart and distinct from Babylon. To live by a different set of values and beliefs. To conform our lives, not to the culture around us, but to conform our lives to Scripture, to God's Word. Which means that we have to predecide what our values are. We have to predecide where we will be different from Babylon. And I think as, as Christians, there's, there's a lot of ways that we can be different. And you've probably met some Christians who are, are very, very different, uh, borderline weird. There's a lot of ways that we can be different. But, but if we really want to set our, ourselves apart, I really think it comes down to what I call the, the big three. Sex, money, power. If you want to be different than the world around you, if you want to be distinct from Babylon, then we need to be set apart in these areas of life. So what, what does that mean? What does that look like for us to be different and set apart in these areas? Well, for one, I, I think it means that, that we hold to biblical sexuality, where we believe that, that sex has been designed and created by God for the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. We hold to a biblical sexuality and we abstain from things that, that contradict with that. We abstain from things like pornography and hookup culture and casual sex, things that are not consistent with God's word. And listen, if you hold to a biblical sexuality, especially when you're in high school and college and your early 20s, man, people are gonna think you're weird. People are gonna look at you like you are very different. But I promise you, it will set you apart from the culture around you. I think it means that we, uh, we approach our, our finances and our money differently. Rather than pursuing wealth for, for our own benefit, where it's all about accumulating more for ourselves and holding on to it so we can acquire more, we recognize and we understand that we are simply stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And we leverage our resources that God has given us to join God in his activity and to be a blessing to others. I think it means that we approach power differently. Instead of using the, the influence and the authority that God has given us for our own gain and our own advantage, we leverage it for the benefit of others. 
We lift people up around us rather than exalting ourselves. And what, why does this matter? Why is it so important for us to be different and set apart and distinct from Babylon, from the culture around us? Well, listen to what Peter says next in verse 12. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter says that, that we are to live differently. We are to be set apart. And people may accuse us of doing wrong, meaning they may not like our values, they may not, not like how we live our lives, they may think we're weird and may criticize us and talk about us and exclude us, but Peter says, when they see that you live a set-apart, distinct life and you hold to biblical values, they will see your good deeds. They may not understand it, they may not get it, but they will see your good deeds and one day when God returns, they will glorify him. And for many, they won't wait till Jesus returns. They will see the way you live your life now and want to trust in Jesus because of how you live your life. If we want to make a difference, we have to be different. We have to be set apart from Babylon around us. The second takeaway that, that we're going to see is this. How we stand matters just as much as what we stand for. And what we see in the story is that, that Daniel, no doubt, he stood up for what he believed. He took a firm stance against his authority. But Daniel's success in taking a stand was tied to how he took a stand. He wasn't aggressive he wasn't disrespectful. He wasn't rude. He approached his authority. He approached those who disagreed with him with grace and humility and respect. And as a 15-year-old, showed incredible wisdom and tact and how he navigated this complex and messy situation. You know, as Christians, I, I, I think we do a pretty good job knowing what we should take a stand for. For the most part, we, we know where to draw the line. But where we often drop the ball is in how we take a stand. And instead of showing grace and respect to, do, to those who disagree with us, instead of approaching people with a posture of, of humility, when somebody disagrees with us, when somebody lives a, a life that we won't, don't agree with, we cancel them. We cut them out. We blast them on, on social media. We rally the troops to protest and the boycott against them. And all this does is alienate the very people that God has called us to reach. Listen, we will not reach people for Jesus simply by standing for truth. We must stand for truth while walking in grace and love. And this requires wisdom and thoughtfulness on our part. We have to be thoughtful about the way we engage, about the way we communicate, about the way that we, we, we approach different issues in our society. And we must do so with a posture of humility where we listen and we empathize. 
Listen, to empathize with somebody does not mean to agree with them. To empathize means I'm trying to understand where you're coming from. I'm trying to listen to what you're saying so that I can respond in a way that's not going to alienate you, but that is actually going to draw you closer to Jesus. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see Daniel and his friends continue to take a stand for what they believe. Time after time, they stood firm in the truth, but they always did so in a way that honors the Lord, but also honors those who disagree with them. How we take a stand as believers is just as critical as what we take a stand for. And finally, number three, God won't honor what doesn't honor him. You know, what, what you see throughout the, the book of Daniel is God's hand of blessing on Daniel and his friends. In this chapter, we see how God blessed them with greater ability and greater influence. He gave them knowledge and understanding. He gave them favor with, with the king of Babylon. And why did God bless them in this way? Why was God so good to them? Because of their faithfulness and their obedience. God blesses those who walk in faithfulness and obedience to him. Now, this isn't a formula for greater materialistic blessing in our life. It doesn't mean, hey, if you will obey God, well, then he's going to get you that job promotion. And if you obey God, you're going to end up with more money. And if you obey God, he'll give you more influence and more authority. In fact, sometimes when we honor the Lord, it means that we face consequences. Sometimes when, when we obey the Lord, it costs us financially. Sometimes we lose influence, we lose authority. And we're going to see Daniel and his friends suffer consequences for obeying the Lord. But God's hand of blessing is on our life when we walk in obedience. When we honor the Lord with our lives, there's this undeniable sense of peace. There's greater purpose and clarity in our life. There's a, a joy that we experience regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. And what God does as we walk in obedience and faithfulness, as we honor him with our lives, God begins to expand our ability and our capacity to make a difference for his kingdom. God honors those who honor him. But you see, the, the inverse is true as well. God won't honor what doesn't honor him. In 1 Samuel, we read about a, a man named Eli and his family. Eli was the, the priest and judge of Israel, and he was a man who faithfully served and followed the Lord throughout his life. He obeyed him. He honored him. But Eli's two sons refused to honor the Lord with their life. They refused to obey and to be faithful to what they had been taught by their father. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, it says this. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that members, he's talking to Eli, that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. 
know, I think most of us would say we want God's hand of blessing on our life, right? Like we, we want God to, to bless us. But God won't honor what God doesn't honor him. And, and God's not going to bless the areas of disobedience in our life. And here's a, a question I, I want you to, to consider today. Here's a question I've been asking myself all week as I've been reading through this story. And is there an area of, of disobedience in your life? Is there an area in your life where, where you're not honoring the Lord? Is there an area where there's a, a lack of integrity? Meaning there's a, a gap between what you say you believe and how you're actually living. Is there an area of disobedience when it comes to, to the way you're, you're managing your finances? When it comes to, to your marriage or your, your family, is there, there, there an issue of integrity and, and disobedience when it comes to, to the way you, you, you manage your business or are pursuing things in your career? Is there an area of disobedience in, in your relationships and your friendships? Is there an area of disobedience, a lack of integrity in the way you spend your time alone? when nobody's looking and there's no accountability and nobody will ever find out. Now here, here's my encouragement, my challenge to, to all of us today. Just like Daniel, let's resolve to honor the Lord. Let's firmly decide, pre-decide today to walk in faithfulness and in obedience to him. And let's live our lives in such a way that we are set apart and we are distinct from Babylon. Not for the sake of being different, not for the sake of being contrarian, not so that people will just think that we're weird. So that when people look at our lives, when they look at the way that we love our spouse, when they look at the way that we parent, when they look at the way we spend our money, when they look at the way we spend our time, when they look at the way that we treat those who disagree with us, that they see Jesus, that they see our lives, they see our good deeds, and they glorify our Father in heaven. So with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, Father, we, we recognize that, man, it is not easy to follow you in our, in our world today. It's not easy to, to follow you in, in Babylon. There's so many things that are, are fighting and pushing against us, so many things that are trying to, to pull us away from, from you and from truth. And God, right now, I, I pray that you would just reveal in our lives areas of disobedience, areas that aren't honoring you, areas where we're conforming not to your word, but to the culture around us. And God, that we would repent of those that we would turn. God, help us to live lives that are set apart, that are distinct, that are different. God, so that we can be vessels that you use to make a difference. God, we want your blessing in our life. We want you to honor us. So God, help us to live lives of obedience and faithfulness to you. Help us to honor you in all that we do. Help us to not live for this kingdom and this world, but to fix our eyes on the eternal kingdom that you've invited us to be a part of. God, help us to, to say yes 
to living for you, regardless of what that may cost us. So Jesus, we love you, and we pray all of this in your name. Amen.